in the book of Hebrews. This morning is part 14. The hearing of faith. Why you might not believe what you think you believe. And this is the second week on these, on these two verses. And, and there will be one more next Sunday on the same two verses. Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. I hope in some form or another you have uh, your Bible with you, whether, whether you're old school or, or whether you've got your iPad or your smartphone or, or whatever. Don't be in church without a Bible. Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, we talked about these words last week because we're not used to seeing them. Let us fear, these are Christians, lest any of you should have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, the us here, he's, he's talking about the Jewish Christians to whom he writes and the threat coming from the Judaizers to pull believers away from a simple faith in Christ and attach them again under the old covenant and under the law. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is saying, "Don't." that's the us. Good news came to us just as to them. The them is the children of Israel at Kadesh. Twelve spies went into the promised land and said it's... They came back and ten said we cannot do this. It's, it's too hard, it's too difficult. I know God has commanded it, but this is not going to work. Two, Joshua and Caleb said, God said we can do it, so we can do it. Let's go in and take the land. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. So they heard God speak and it did them no good whatsoever because they were, and this is what we've been talking about, not united by faith with those who, who listened. Let's pray. Our need for your word goes deeper than our awareness of our need for your word. So we not only need your Holy Spirit to quicken our understanding of the text, we need you, Holy Spirit, to alert us to our need for the text. Nothing would be more dangerous, even as in a physical sense, to be dangerously malnourished and to be unaware of it. Most of us who drove into this parking lot this morning are not as keenly aware as we should be of our need for a deeper hunger for you. Life goes well on many fronts. And so how we need your Holy Spirit to bring an alertness, a sharpness, a desire in our hearts not to lower the bar of normal Christianity, but to be keenly hungry, growing in Christ. And so feed all of us, this side of the pulpit and the other, feed all of us from your word this day. 
the grace of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The central concern of last week's teaching, the main point of application was uh, the truth from God's word doesn't function in a life-giving way merely because we acknowledge it as true or because we hear it with agreement. God requires a hearing that is mixed with faith. Then I took quite a bit of time, maybe, maybe more than I should have, I don't know. I took quite a bit of time comparing our opening text in the ESV. The NIV goes in the same direction. With the way the same verse is translated in the NASB and the Old King James. Let us therefore fear, lest while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we, the we and they are still the same people, have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it, that's the word, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. This is the same idea stated in a slightly different wording, and I took about 15 minutes saying why this is not a threat to the doctrine of inspiration. You can, that's online, you can check that out, I'm not reviewing it. The, the point is, it's not enough to just hear what God says. Here we are, God's word. This is what we're doing right now. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to agree with it. Our text says that hearing is uh, numbing. Hearing can actually be life-destroying unless it's a hearing combined with faith. Though, to be blunt, our writer in the text doesn't press that truth home as lightly as I just did when I said hearing without faith is numbing and life-destroying. The writer of our text actually says there's a call to fear divine judgment when we hear God's word and don't hear it with faith. And so that's why... He urges all of us here today not, not to take this warning lightly. You can see it in that first verse. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let, let us, we should be afraid. Right now, you should be afraid of something. I should be afraid of something. Let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. And so when I read a verse like that, I, I say to myself, let us fear. Fear what? It's good to ask questions of a text. Fear what? Bad luck? Fear maybe missing some additional blessing that God might have for us? No. Our writer reminds us that God wiped out a generation wandering in the wilderness, 600,000 people under the wrath of God. Why? For their failure to hear God's word with faith. And you, and you sort of go, 
Wow. And then he clearly says, perhaps more clearly than we'd like, he says, we have had God speak to us just as they had God speak to them. That's verse 2. We have had good news preached to us just as they also. You can see it right there. So in other words, there's, there's a comparison being made. I'm not making it up. Let's not, he's saying, let's not make the same mistake they made. Let's not reap the same wrath. There's, there's just no way, like it or not, there's no way of making sense of that text if we try to wave some softer interpretive wand over the text and make, make that message go away. It just, it just sits there. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Good news came to us, just as to them. The message they heard did not, did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't copy the faith of Joshua and Caleb. They didn't receive the word with faith. For we who have believed, not just heard, believed. We who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore these are not nice words, are they? This is God speaking. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so, so as the weight of these words kind of settles on our heart, this is what we've been looking at last week. I've just kind of covered it again. As those aren't breezy, light words. This is not... Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. These, these words don't land the same way. I think we're all agreed, right? Right? Yeah. They, just, they don't land the same way. And as the weight of those words kind of settles on our hearts, the, I think the pull of the Holy Spirit through a text like this, it, it calls thinking Christians, that's us, to ask the all-important question. The hearing of faith seems really, really important. Correct? There's a group that did not hear with faith. They heard, but it wasn't a hearing mixed with faith. They died in the wilderness. We've had God's word come to us, he says. Let's not make the mistake they made. Let's hear the word of God with faith. And so the next question ought to be, okay, so what is the hearing of faith? If it's that important, I want to get this right. So, what is the hearing of faith? If all of this is riding on how I hear God's word, day in, day out, all through my Christian walk, in devotions after devotions, in Bible study after Bible study, sermon after sermon, church service after church service, class after class, if all of this is, is at stake... How do I mix faith with my hearing of the word? 
I need to know that. Is it, is it a matter of reading it and going, okay, I really, did this just move? I really, really, really have to believe this. Is that what it is? If I'm to hear about the cross with faith, is it, is it somehow um, contingent on my capacity to, to imagine, to really, some people can do that. They, they're, they're, they're dramatic in the way they, they picture things. So I can, I can put myself right there. I can, I can see the hillside and the crosses. I have that ability. Is, is that what it is? Imagining, vivifying. Is that what the hearing of faith is? I don't think it is. And by the way, some people are better at imagining things than others. And if you can't picture things as well as somebody else, that doesn't mean you're not a person of faith. Relax. We started thinking about this right at the close of last week's teaching time. In about the last ten minutes. Here's where we went. We went to Hebrews 11.1. And we just, just started, and I said we'd continue. We just started peeling the lid off of this verse. Because, well, it seems to talk about what we're looking at. Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, most of us can pretty much quote the first half of that verse. If you grew up in church circles at all, most of us can pretty much quote the first half of that verse at least. Faith is the, the old King James. It's the substance of things hoped for. I like that. So faith gives substance to things not seen. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, right? You all see that? Things not seen. That's, that's what we're talking about. So faith does something with things not seen. What does it do? Well, faith, faith gives Gives substance to those things. Most of the things you and I anchor our faith to are unseen things. There are things that are long past in history. I don't think there's any denying that. The, the virgin birth, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension. They all happened a long time ago. You, you can't physically put yourself back there in time. You can't do it. They're, they're unseen. I mean, they happened, but they're not, like, they're not like this stuff that we see right here and now. And there are things still in the future. Second coming. The resurrection of the dead. The new creation. The rewards for the blessed, the damnation of the unrepentant at the judgment. But you can't, you can't see any of those things. They're still down the road at some point. 
So we got things way back in that direction, agreed? We got things way forward in that direction, and, and, and you can't hold any of them in your hand. They don't have physicality. They don't have this kind of substance. Things long past, things yet to come, that's where, that's where our faith is anchored, and we can't materially hold those things. We read about those things, we hear about those things, we hold those things to be true, we agree with those things, and for the most part, that's our understanding of what it means to, to have faith in these things. I believe what the Bible says about them. I agree. These things are true. And what I'd like to suggest is that's very important, but it doesn't fulfill what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he talks about faith is the substance. We give substance to unseen things. Because just knowing about them and just knowing they're true, that can't be what faith is because James says demons believe everything you believe. They don't deny any of it. But, like those stubborn followers of Moses who rebelled at Kadesh and died roaming in the wilderness, demons aren't benefited by the truth that they know. That's the, that's the key. They aren't benefited by it. And the writer says those, those rebellious people at Kadesh, they weren't benefited. The text says so. They weren't benefited by what they heard. Demons aren't benefited by what they know to be true. I said last Sunday, many professing Christians do not believe what they think they believe. That New Testament faith is not admitting the factuality of some scriptural statement or some biblical event. You don't, you don't believe something in the New Testament sense of faith just because you agree that it's true. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, the hearing of faith gives, gives substance to things we can't hold in our hands right now. Either things that happened long ago or things that are in the future. We, we can't give material substance to those things. No one can. So, what does the writer of Hebrews 11.1 1 mean when he says faith is the substance of things hoped? What kind of substance is this if it isn't this kind of material substance? What kind of substance is it? That's where we got to last week. And now, of course, you're starting to understand why this is taking us three weeks. Get to the point, Pastor Donald. Point number one. I change the wording of this. It'll be substantially the same as what you'll see on the screen. I just, this morning, kind of doctored it a bit. The hearing of faith gives moral substance. Moral is the word. Moral substance. The, the appropriate moral application to what it acknowledges as factually true. Now, 
don't get bogged down. It's not complicated. The first example I mentioned at the close of last week was how faith hears the truth about the death of God the Son on the cross. It happened a long time ago. And I can't take my body back there. So, so how does faith give substance to just that? The death of Jesus, his shed blood on the cross. Paul tells us how faith gives moral substance to the event of the cross. Look at this. So we're thinking about the cross. And the interesting thing is, here's two verses. Paul is speaking and strikingly... The forgiveness of sins is not mentioned in either verse. Now, Paul believes in that. We know that from other verses. That, that's not my point. What, what effect, what was the moral substance, the reaction in Paul to the event of the cross that happened a long time ago? He tells us, Galatians 2.20 says, well, first, I've been crucified with Christ. He's going to tell us what that means in a minute. That's because that's, that's kind of vague. I'm still alive. I'm not, you don't see any nail prints. I'm, I'm not scarred. In what sense am I crucified with Christ? He doesn't say right there. It's no longer I who live. Okay, that's the same idea again. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now, so he's talking about present tense. The substance of the cross presently even though it happened 2,000 years, well, not when Paul wrote, but for us, 2,000 years ago. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Look at 524, same letter. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. Okay, there. So the flesh isn't, isn't the physical. He's still alive. He means this. So now we know when he says he was crucified with Christ and he didn't say what that was, now we know what it is. It's this, right? This is faith giving moral substance to the event of the cross, which we can't see anymore. It's in the past. There's, he's saying there is a present moral effect that faith gives to the cross. Right now in my experience, Paul says. There's, there's an application in the present. There's a real, observable, substantial reaction in me to the cross of Jesus. It happens right in my life. The cross isn't just an idea that I agree with. It, it's somehow a present moral event in my life. The cross is a present moral event in my life. It's, it's happening right now in my life. You can see it happening in my life. How, Paul? It's all sorts of things that I used to get pushed around just by my own desires. Oh, they said the lights aren't all working. Stay in the light. I assume you meant those lights. I'm hoping you didn't mean... How, Paul? How can we see this in your life? Well, 
I, I'm the kind of person that has inward desires, passions. They don't have to be disgusting, lewd passions, just passions. I like church services to be my style of worship. Not the guy across the aisle. I like to win all the arguments. But you see, I believe in the cross of Christ, not just in, in, in the sense that it happened, but it has a moral effect on, on my life right now. It, it, it changes what I allow and what I don't allow. And if you look at my life, if you follow me around day after day after day, I hope in growing degrees, Paul would say, you'll see what it means to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. I was an educated man, Paul would say. A lot of religious and legal pedigree behind my name. And I can't tell you the number of times I was whipped and beaten and dragged out of cities and stoned and shipwrecked and bitten by snakes. And I didn't enjoy it, but see, I've, I believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. You can see it in my life. I'm not just talking about it. I'm not just agreeing that it happened. Those who belong to Christ. Is that you? They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Until that starts to happen, until I start to see, oh, that's how faith looks at the cross of Christ. That's faith giving substance to the cross of Christ. Until I start to see the moral application of the cross, I will, I will tend to think that believing in Christ just means that, that I use redemption to continue to justify present sin. God's loving, God's gracious, Jesus died for my sins. So I can continue in sin because, well, grace just abounds. Paul says, if, if that's how you're living life... You might not say those words, but if you're sitting here this morning and the Lord's talking to you or other Christians talk to you and people point out things in your life that aren't right and you're saying, well, Jesus, Jesus is gracious and he died for my sins. If that's what you're saying, you don't believe in the cross of Christ. You think you believe in the cross of Christ. You don't believe what you think you believe. Here's another example. Second example of the hearing of faith and the moral substance that it gives to unseen realities. Let's look at the resurrection of Jesus. We've talked about the cross. At what point do I have faith in the resurrection rather than just believing that it actually happened? Did you know you can believe the resurrection actually happened and not have faith in it? You can. You can. Philippians 3.10. It's a long sentence and we're jumping into the middle of it. That I may know him, this is Jesus, speaking of Christ, and the 
power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings becoming, here again, like him in his death. Now Paul is not a new convert as he writes those words to the church at Philippi. He's been following Jesus for some time. So, so the resurrection of Jesus as an actual event he has known for a long time. It's not new news. He was confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. So he knows Christ rose from the dead. That is not what he's talking about in this verse. That kind of factual proof and factual agreement, it isn't the issue in these words. By, by knowing Christ, knowing Christ's resurrection, Paul doesn't mean acknowledging that it happened. We know that because he tells us that. He's talking about something else. He's talking about a present, inward, moral force. A substance in his life right now. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, he's talking about, he's talking about his raised appetites toward holiness. That's... To use the Hebrews word, that's the substance of the resurrection in Paul's life. That's the effect of the resurrection in Paul's life. Even though it happened a long time ago. He's talking about how the resurrection of Jesus changes his to-do list. And he's talking quite specifically, when you look at those words, about, about the resurrection as it relates to facing persecution for the cross, for the gospel... Abuse from people, ridicule, loss of friends, loss of a job. Just the kind of crud that can come into your life because in this culture, being committed to a risen Christ is not a popular thing. And he says, I believe in the resurrection in the sense that there's a power in my life that drives me through all that stuff. I don't just believe it happened. It has an effect on me. That's the hearing of faith. Now don't do this just to humor me. Am I starting to get this through to you? If you're starting to see what I'm saying about the hearing of faith and the moral power that it gives. Put your hand up. Let me just see. Several of you. Okay. That's the hearing of faith applied to Christ's resurrection. That's faith giving substance to the resurrection of Jesus. Anything less is mere intellectual agreement. Remember, I'm not belittling this. I'm just saying, like, proofs for the resurrection are valuable for sure as far as they go. But you can know and agree with them all and still be miles away from the hearing of faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it isn't just... Being able to prove it happened. That, that I may know him and, and the power of his resurrection. Hard to follow Jesus sometimes, right? Hard when you're the only Christian in the home. The only student in the class. 
the only Christian at your workplace. And you're called to proselytize. You're called to make Jesus known. And there's going to be all sorts of pushback. And just agreeing that Jesus rose from the dead isn't going to cut it. You need to know the, the power of his resurrection in you. Let me give you one more example. The New Testament speaks about another future event. It's invisible to the physical eye. You can't touch it with your hands, but it's going to happen. So the Bible says there's coming a time of future judgment for all mankind, everybody. In text after text, parable after parable, chapter after chapter, there's a warning of future accountability. Whatever, you know, however you chart your eschatology... It's in there. Judgment. How, how does faith, the hearing of faith, respond to this? Peter gives us a pretty good explanation of it. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 19. As obedient children, now let's be clear... He's talking to Christians. We're all agreed? As obedient children, and here's the instruction. Do not be conformed, so there's this shaping process, to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also will be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as, so these are Christians, Father, who, what does he do? Well, this is judges impartially according to each one's deeds. What does the hearing of faith do with that? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which is how long? You're in it right now. It started, you weren't aware of it, it started in some hospital or place where you were born and your exile will end when they lower a box in the ground with your name on it. And he says, for that whole stretch, you conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, there's a reason I think this is such a fascinating text. Because Peter, he strings together ideas that don't seem to combine very well. First, there's... The reminder of coming judgment, that's in 17. And then the reminder to conduct yourselves with fear, that's in 17. And then, strangely, this is immediately followed by those glorious words about being ransomed, 18, by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot. That's the strange part. Because, because I would think Redemption, 
through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, I would think that that would remove any fear of coming judgment, wouldn't it? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? But there's no misreading Peter's intent. I mean, he's clearly writing to believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They call God Father, 17. And those redeemed by the blood of Jesus, children of God who call them Father, those people are commanded to live their entire earthly lives fearing. What's going on here? How are we going to explain it? Well, first, it does relate to the opening. We're looking at Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. And this whole thing from Peter, it, it does fit, doesn't it, with Hebrews 4, 1. While the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So it does fit. He's saying the same thing. I think one of the keys, and, I, and, and let me just take a minute with this. I think one of the keys is remembering the distinction. You don't see it very much in current um, religious theological books. It's not dealt with as much now. But there's a distinction that like people like the Puritans used to make between what they called legal fear and gospel fear. You won't hear about that much anymore. I think it's valid. Legal fear is the fear sinners have of being condemned for breaking the law of God. Gospel fear is the protective fear Christians are to have against taking the remedy for sin too lightly. That's different. So legal fear is the fear of judgment, breaking the law, guilty. And, and there's just no misreading the Bible. It's so clear. Christians don't fear the condemnation of the law. You heard me say it. I believe that with all my heart. Christians don't fear the condemnation of the law. Jesus bore all my law-breaking. Jesus bore God's wrath for my law-breaking. I don't need to leave in fear, live in fear of that. I get that. So legal fear is fear of judgment for breaking God's law. Gospel fear is the, is the holy fear... Against, against just kind of carelessly, casually, carnally presuming on grace to keep going in sin without worrying about it too much. You, you fear that. Do you see the difference between those two fears? So one is fear of, of the guilt of the sin. The other is fear of ignoring the remedy. Gospel fear, the whole Bible says, is, is never to leave the Christian. It's not supposed to leave the Christian. So, 
There's the judgment in that text. And obedient children who call God Father, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, are told, you live your whole lifetime here fearing that you take that seriously enough. That is what the hearing of faith does with the coming judgment. That's how it works it into daily choices. I'm not trying to see what I can get away with. I know how dangerous that can be. I live my whole life here with that fear. There's something so precious. It's not silver and gold. It's the blood of Jesus. Oh, oh, may I never take that lightly. May I never presume on that. May I never cease to glorify him for that. May I keep that vivid in my mind. Because if I don't, I'm just going to say, well, I'm forgiven. There. Said sinner's prayer, 1967. I'm good. No, you'd be afraid of that. Let me give you one final picture of how this works. And we're almost done, I promise. Let me close with a very strange text. And the reason I'm picking it is because it works, it works so clearly because it shows the principle, the principle of whether whatever term I've used that you want to kind of hook on to, the, the hearing of faith, giving substance to invisible things. It shows how that works, but in the opposite direction, in the negative direction from our text in Hebrews. The text is 2 Peter. If you have your Bibles, make sure you look this one up. Second Peter 2, 12 to 14. And Peter is not writing about Christian people in this text. He's writing about very wicked people. And he's writing about how they got that way. And it has something to do with the hearing of faith. And that's what, how I want to try and tie that in. And you have to jump into the middle of a thought. But these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be, this is what they have coming, you can't erase this from your Bible, destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. So these people are in big trouble. We're agreed, right? This is a mess. Nothing good in their future at all. 13, right in the middle. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now here's the phrase I want to talk about. 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin. They, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts, look at, trained in greed, accursed children. I only have time for one phrase. Do you see it in 14? They have eyes full of adultery. Here's my question. Does Peter mean that these immoral people are literally 
physically in the act of adultery 24-7, seven days a week, 30 days of the month, 365 days a year. We all know that sinner or righteous, no one has even the stamina for that kind of life. Okay? It's not what he's talking about. Peter doesn't mean, when he says they have eyes full of adultery, he doesn't mean they are in the physical act of adultery every minute. No. What he means is, they have, they have prepared themselves for adultery. They, they are constantly setting themselves up for adultery. That's what, that's what he means. He means, he means they give... They give momentum to the physical act of adultery even when they're not committing it. Okay? They are giving substance to the act of adultery long before they get there. Everybody sees it? That's what they're doing. That's what the writer of Hebrews says on the positive side... That's what the hearing of faith does with spiritual truths. I, 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 am, I am setting myself up for a proper response to persecution and ridicule. I am setting my appetites up for a deeper pursuit of holiness. I am pushing other things out of my life that I enjoy because I have been crucified with Christ. That's how faith thinks about the cross. Not just that it happened, but I got all sorts of stuff in my life. I would follow Jesus better if I just nailed some of it. So here's this negative example. He means, in 2 Peter, that these these people think about adultery. They give moral energy to adultery and it tilts their heart toward adultery before they physically do it they give substance to the idea of adultery they place their hope for satisfaction in sexual experimentation and excitement in adultery in a way that goes way beyond just knowing what adultery is pure people know what adultery is Morally pure people can tell you what adultery is, but that doesn't lead them into it. But having eyes full of adultery is different. It's giving moral energy, momentum to the knowledge of just what adultery is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you might be thinking, Pastor Don, what on earth are you going to do next Sunday? Well, I think the logical conclusion of this is... Next Sunday I want to look at... What are, what are the steps I can take... What are the steps I can take to increase my faith in unseen things? In that moral sense. So that my life is actually transformed by them. Uh, is it, is it just praying? Maybe the Holy Spirit will do this for me. He, he sure wants to be involved in that. No question, you can't do it yourself. But there are steps that Christian people can take that contribute toward the hearing of faith. 